How's it going, Chris? Um, I it's going all right. I I just woke up. John technically woke me up, but the reason it took me so long to pop on, and I guess I should give a shout out to the city of Berkeley. As I was going into the the office room, I noticed that my car was getting ticketed. Oh no! <laughs> because it's street sweeping day. But I went down while the guy was still at my car, and he took the ticket back. So that's oh, that's cool. nice. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Because that's they, a good way to start the day. Because they don't always do that. They don't. I've I've heard, and it's expensive too. But unfortunately, my girlfriend was parked in front of me, and and she's not around to move her car. So, <laughs> so they, they, weren't you off? they weren't that nice. No. So. Oh, so you still give you a ticket? They gave her a ticket. Oh, okay. Oh. But, but they didn't give me a ticket. No, it doesn't uh, matter. <laughs> <laughs> I feel guilty now. We're gonna have to split it or something. Because what? It was pure. Actually, I should I should be crediting John Schmoida with. That's true. With getting getting out of the ticket. That's so thank true. you, John. And social improv in general. I think. But by the way, we just well anyway. So do we want to? It's just the three of us. Yeah, I'm recording. Okay. Well, then I guess Should we're I be going recording already. too, or is yours going to be good enough for a turn? I think mine will be good enough. And I'm recording okay. too, so we'll be. We have oh, all right. plenty of redundancy. <laughs> I'll shut down that thing then. Um, shut down. <laughs> so, uh, do we have anything we want to talk about? I I don't really have anything. I mean, I guess we've been sending around some emails. I I don't remember what they are though. Yeah, of course. Uh, but there are two things I think that are uh, time worthy. Time worthy. I'm not sure that's the correct term to say. But uh, Glenn Beck. Uh, is uh, leaving no, Fox. No, we're not yeah. going to talk about that. Oh, I'm so sick on. of talking about him. <laughs> you just leaving. love talking about He's Glenn leaving. Beck. Well, it's like Good. newsworthy. There, it's we've, we've, then we've mentioned it. D- story done. What's next? And he's been a tad bit more negative than usual. I mean, that said, I guess that's, that's the last thing I wanted to say about it. Well, he was getting too crazy. He was aggravating the advertisers, even. Well, he was making these connections between the left and <laughs> radical Muslims. And, you know, all these things that are going on in the Middle East is kind of all related to kind of our ploy to destroy America as well. Because what we're doing, actually, is trying to unsettle the systems so that we can enact our own kind of socialistic experiments. But we first have to bring down our own government. And you see this right now in the Middle East. And that's what we're doing, which even for Glenn Beck is a little bit kind of more extreme than usual. So I think the people at Fox News are kind of like, eh, you know, you kind of served your purpose, getting so, kind of crazy. Who's next? Do they have like a? Is there some new up and comer that I'm not aware of? I I don't know. There's there's going to be. I mean, I was watching John Stewart last night, and he made this interesting point that like Glenn Beck's purpose was essentially to make the rest of Fox News seem kind of centrist. So you <laughs> need this kind of like crazy guy, but maybe he got too crazy and started believing the own. No, the very same things that he's saying, and so they need to find somebody not as crazy. But it makes sense to me. <laughs> okay, what's the other story? Uh, and then the uh, the government <laughs> shutdown. Um, oh yeah, that. Oh, is that then, happening? Uh, well, we have twelve hours to go. Oh, okay. I seems, thought I was slept through when it started, but still. And, and you know, it's stalling the as as this moment I just heard right now. It's the funding for parent Planned Parenthood is the last thing they can't negotiate. Which has got to be a huge part of the budget. I mean, huge. Oh, yeah. I mean, Giant. just, I think it's like, what, how many more wars could we be involved in if we didn't have to pay for Planned Parenthood? I mean, a good 60% of our GDP goes towards you know, abortions in this country. And what least. I know of the facts. At least. 
So I, I don't know. I think that's kind of ironic. It's not surprising at all. We're surrounded by morons. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I was saying this a couple of weeks back. Like, I kind of appreciate that there's a new kind of political consciousness about budgets, and that maybe we have been overspending. But it just seems like certain parties have been using that to like follow a different agenda. Like, well, yeah, we are spending too much on things like Planned Parenthood and social services to the poor. Like, it seems kind of extreme like i would have um i kind of see the need to cut down budgets you know but this just seems ridiculous no there's no need to cut budgets there's need to raise taxes on rich people it's really that simple that solves the problem yes go back to clinton level taxes when i don't recall feeling too horribly repressed and everything's fine for the most part and i was i was actually reading uh or watching um Freakonomics on Netflix the other day. That's weird. So was I. Oh, <laughs> wait. If we want to get into this, I don't know if we want to get into criticizing the movie or, or reviewing the movie, but well, I've got I, something to say. I <laughs> but seen you it. go first. Well, I'm gonna sound like an idiot. What's the name of the Economist? Um, uh, Levitt. What is Levitt? It? So first, I I didn't even know there was a movie. Is it like a documentary or something? Or? I think they- yeah, kind of. It's like an extended episode of 2020, but with different staff. Yeah, it's it's basically like they take a couple chapters. I haven't read the book, but they take a couple chapters and like do these like little mini documentaries by different producers. Everyone um, has kind of a different feel and a different visual aesthetic to it. I yeah. only saw maybe half of it, so yeah, it's nice because you don't have to watch everything in one go. I actually been seeing it over a couple days, like one episode here, one you know, because it can just be seen as like five ten minute episodes. Um, but I saw the Maybe one. I compared anything to 2020. That's a really weird reference for me to make. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, there's no Stossel. All right, sorry. <laughs> talking about Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, it talks about one of Levitt's kind of uh, more controversial claims about the crime rate declining in the 1990s right. as being a result of legalizing abortion in the 1970s, um, which is a really interesting. Um, uh, argument. Have you had you heard of this before? Any of you guys? I, I, I have. Yeah. I listened to the audio book many years ago, like when the book when it was new. So yeah. I have. I mean, and it was of course very popular at the time. But I have kind of a. I, I remember the argument basically. Yeah. So. Which I, I know I must you know be something that people have talked about for a, a period of time right now. But for me, it was kind of like a, a fresh idea, and it you know it's, I, I like the idea. It's kind of interesting that you know perhaps. Fifty percent of the variance, or fifty percent of the uh, reduction of the crime rate in nineteen nineties, is the result of you know a certain segment of the population, not necessarily not being born, but being born into a context in which, you know, he talks about a birth that's wanted versus a birth that's not wanted, and um, he, you know, the argument is that those kids that would have been raised in the kind of not wanted birth would have grown up to be criminals. Because we know that, you know, from the criminological literature that it's mainly young boys or young men between the ages of 18 and 25 where they do the most amount of crime. And, you know, 1970s, Roe versus Wade, you know, when women had the ability to choose, his argument is that you have a reduction in the number of unwanted pregnancies. Hence, 20 years later, there's a reduction in the crime rate. Um, which is, I think, kind of an interesting kind of structural uh, argument. So can I, can I ask a few questions? So, Chris, you've seen this too? Uh, this, yeah, I did see this You saw this segment. part? 
So I've I have seen few, this segment and two others. So I have a few questions then. All right. Sure. Um, this book was like massively popular. So right. I'm assuming that people have done follow-up studies and there's a nice trail of papers that have all looked at this question and like whether or not it has anything, any merit to it or not, right? I'm just assuming. I'm not like, uh, I don't know the literature offhand. So I like, would just be assuming too, but this chapter of the book, back when the book came out, and the it always struck me as a chapter they included because I think they'd done that particular paper that the chapter is based on. I don't know about uh, a, a literature that supports it, but it seemed like it was going to be good for the book because the book, the whole hook of Freakonomics was these are, the, the data suggests these responses are explanations for different phenomena that you may not initially think of. And they were kind of relying on the shock value of that particular case to to hype the book a little bit. Well, I mean... So- it's hard to extrapolate causal claims or make solid causal claims with that type of data, right? I mean, I think that's the problem of any kind of research where you're using historical data. Um, and they even kind of speak a little bit, framing the, at least in the movie, that, you know, making causal claims, difference between correlations and causation is a very difficult thing to do. And he was trying to, like, set out yeah. how different causal claims in the past are, are weaker than this other causal claim. Um, and I think they kind of probably mischaracterize, you know, a That's little bit. That's the thing. If, if they were so concerned about the delicacy of the causal claim, then that tone, the tone of that segment should have been a lot different. Yeah. Because they had this that. really weird comparative case, which was partially a comparative case and partially just a way to introduce the idea. Yeah, and you, you couldn't be sure how they were mobilizing it about, what was it, Romania, right? And Ceausescu. Yeah. Well, at first they charged they they attacked this whole causation correlation thing by talking about uh you know this belief that eating ice cream led to um what is it? Uh, some childhood disease polio. You know, and there was like this this correlation that, you know, polio right, right. increased during the summer months when ice cream consumption was really high and so, hence there was this belief that kids eating too much ice cream led to polio and they're like, "Well, see, it's really easy to fall into these kind of causation correlation problems." And, you know, when the crime rate declined in the 1990s, there were all sorts of claims about why it was occurring, but a lot of these were correlations. But, I mean, I don't know the analysis that he did, but the analysis that he did are, is also correlation, correlative in a sense. You know, I mean, you have to kind of establish, you know, uh, an antecedent causal mechanism, which he demonstrates. But, I mean, it's still a correlative argument um, that he right. has to just kind of say that it's stronger. And I think... He really attacked the other claims about why the crime rate declined, such as you know innovative uh, uh, policing and um, the economy getting better by showing how in situations where those when when those factors weren't around, the crime rate still declined. So it's a that know. was actually kind of weak too, though, because the whole basis of the analysis there was the the, the movie was kind of like read the book because they said. Um, they found that this would account for only this percentage of the de- decrease in crime. But they right. never went into the reasons, really, that those didn't work. They just kind of out of right. hand said, we didn't think those other things explained it. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I haven't things. read the book, and, but you're right. And that was my it. criticism with the parts of the film that I saw overall, was that they bring up a lot of interesting ideas, but 
Yeah, you're they, like, how do we solve this causation correlation? It wasn't problem? even that. I would like, like to know. <laughs> it <laughs> wasn't even me being an academic nerd that want. It was just even to a, a regular viewer, someone who saw it in passing, it would seem like, well, you brought up an interesting idea, but I, I learned nothing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, at least from the movie's perspective, I, I, I don't know what is the main idea of the book. I mean, that you see the world differently. How? What is the... That's, that's what I was gonna kind of going to ask is that was the whole thing is that it was very much about Stephen Levitt as, as a personality and as this kind of like quirky economist who looked at all these uh, uh, strange topics in strange ways. You know, yeah. So I mean, you know, I hear about the a film being made, and I wondered how much of it was about that angle of it, and how much of it was about you know, uh, <coughs> like understanding the nuances of making causal claims with, you know, certain kinds of data. You know, stuff that like uh, that doesn't seem like it would make a great movie. The uh, the 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 book or the the movie rather is very insistent on data as being the way to solve these problems or understand these problems. Yeah, that's it's true. It always goes back to yeah. in this case the numbers. Yeah, and it was kind of an exercise in like the, the the ultimate thesis of the film. At least I saw the the latter half seemed to be like it's important to have evidence for your claims and lateral thinking is important. Just very generally. Yeah. No, I I, I think you're right. I think that kind of falls yeah. apart. Like, did you see the, this is maybe changing the topic a bit, but did you see the segment after, I think after that, the um, incentivizing high school students to get better grades? No, I haven't seen that one. I was going to see that one next. All right. I, maybe we shouldn't talk about it. Cause I don't hey, want to. I haven't seen any of them. So just, you know. But <laughs> two, two against one is fine. But one against two is verboten. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because I was watching, because I find, I find it interesting how economists view social problems and i i actually find it very interesting and i like listening yeah. to um yeah uh, like that's Planet. where i was going but yeah and i i bet this is going to kind of let you talk about this because i was thinking like that's why i was watching that documentary i like listening to uh uh the economist podcast i go on their website read a little bit of the magazine i like listening to planet money but i've always found the economists have a particular way of looking at data and kind of extrapolating these kind of different ways of thinking about social behavior that I think at times is just fundamentally flawed. But like, mm -hmm. so they'll ask questions like, you know, how much does child abuse really cost us in, you know, in terms of a marketplace? How much, you know, you know, we know that bad teaching is bad, but how much does it cost us to have bad teachers? And I was listening to this uh, Planet Money podcast where this economist was saying, you know, if we just got rid of the bad teachers, we would save a hundred million, a hundred trillion dollars over the next fifty years. That's a lot of money, and I'm like, that's a ridiculous statement. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure you have a model for that, but like, how do you a get rid of bad teachers? And he's like, you just need to get rid of the lowest twenty five percent. And you go, well, if you get rid of those lowest twenty five percent, wouldn't you have another twenty five percent that would become now the lowest twenty five percent? Like, what is it about your model that's actually taking into account that it's the teachers and a hundred trillion dollars. I mean, that's just—it just seems like the math is wrong there somehow. I mean, and it just seems like that kind of question is like, how much does this cost? Is an artifact of like, well, that's the data that they have. You know, they're looking at usually financial right. data, and they're trying to extrapolate like human behavior from it. And sometimes it's very interesting, but sometimes I feel like these questions are more an artifact of that than reality as we kind of experience it you know we don't think about everything in terms of exchanges um even though much of our world seems to work like that i 
I feel like as sociologists, that's kind of the argument that like, well, not everything is a rational exchange of consumer goods. And while it's interesting to think about what is the cost of child abuse and what is the cost of teaching, it, those are kind of weird questions to ask. But, you know. The, the concept of exchange is kind of interesting in this context because some of the very first work, not, not you know, the genesis of it all, but pretty soon after sociology and anthropology, <clears throat> excuse me, got off the ground, exchange was one of the concepts that they dealt with quite seriously. If you look to early anthropology, it was one of the core ideas they were examining. If you look to early sociology, once you get past the kind of formative classic trinity of of social theorist years, exchange becomes a big deal. But one of the first insights that sociologists had into it, and anthropologists as well, is, you know, the economists are right, exchange is important, but the economists are limited in how they understand exchange, and that it's not just economics, but all these other different dimensions that one could see and examine and understand exchange. And, yeah. you know, a hundred years later, we're still making the same mistakes. <laughs> like, yeah. Or, or it's still the same discussion in economics. And but, sociologists kind of moved on. Like, I heard this interview with this economist about, like, at what point does exploitation uh, cost you money? So it was like this economist trying to understand um, uh, third world uh, sweatshops. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how much money would we need to pay a sweatshop owner before he starts improving the sweatshop conditions? You know, and I'm like, that's an interesting way to think about it. <laughs> Utterly ridiculous about why we have, you know, but that seems to the be world. the kind of the take, the the subtext I got from a lot of the Freakonomics stuff was um, this this sort of quasi libertarian setup, which was we're we're spending a ton of money on all these different social problems. If we just threw money at it in the way that economists talk about, and not in the way in the the way that governments talk about it, how much better off would it be? And that was kind of what I got out of the, the film. Because the, the, the one that you're about to watch, I think the remaining vignette is about incentivizing high school students to do better. Okay. And it was, you know, schools, the education system spends all this money in a variety of different ways to attack the problem that students are underachieving. So yeah. what if we took them out of the equation and just kind of directly tried to incentivize students by paying them for increases in grades? Yeah. So they tried it as it's like a pilot study in some Illinois Rust Belt town to try and get it done. And yeah. it kind of breaks down from there because it's actually a very poorly produced segment, I thought. Oh, um, okay. the, the, maybe the book also suggested that they didn't have enough data to really say anything about it and they just wanted to talk about the issue. But the film segment shows nothing conclusive about any of it. They, they follow two kids to demonstrate the concept. One of them initially talks about, I think they, get, they pay you 50 bucks per course that you improve in, something like this. You get entered into a drawing for 500 bucks. They have a big sort of party to give you a giant check if you win, blah, 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 to really make it a special thing. One of the kids initially agrees that it's a good idea, but then totally fails out and starts talking about joining the military. The other kid initially has some difficulty with it, but loves the idea and eventually does really well. Interesting. But nothing about the larger anything is taught, and nothing about how a sociologist would examine it is taken seriously. 
So like the, the, the big issue with me as far as, and I'm not an education sociologist, but the cultural capital issues were always really significant to me. And I know there's a literature going back to the 60s that suggests that, like from James Coleman, I think, that cultural capital is really important in understanding achievement gaps. Because if you look at rich kids versus poor kids in any high school or high schools he looked at, during the semester, it showed that the deployment of resources was effective in closing that gap. But when summer came around, the poorer kids fell off quite a bit, and the rich kids kept improving. So it suggested that school does work, and we're not wasting all of this money, but there are things that the system can't handle. And that goes into parenting, social structural issues, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And the eco economic perspective seems to totally ignore that. Shameless plug, the Office Hours interview with Douglas Downey talks about this extensively. Oh, oh really? perfect. Yes. Yeah. Because they showed this woman and, and the, the, one of the, one of the, they showed both of the students' mothers. And they're struggling with the kid who's underperforming in high school. Having kids is like death to me. So I have tons of respect for what they're doing. But you could also see how ineffective it was. And maybe this is just the way the film was edited or whatever. But there's one woman who's, she obviously wants her son to do better. And she's trying to do everything she can to make that happen, but it takes the form of this really sort of punitive, distrustful discourse. I don't believe that you actually did the homework. I don't believe that you read the book. If you want to succeed, you have to do the work. And that kind of strategy only works to a certain point. After that, it's other things that you have to say and do to get through to a, a kid in that position that at least it made it seem she had no idea about. And you kind of saw that play out in the film. So it pointed to those cultural capital kind of things. I, I might being really long-winded and inarticulate. No, no, I think it's interesting. Okay. I, it, it reminds me a little bit of – I talked in the past before, like when I was kind of a social worker. And, you know, a, a big thing right now, or it's been the big thing for the last couple of years, is this whole uh, part of mental health that's really behavioral-focused. And so here in California, every school district has to hire a behavior analyst and I had to work with, with behavior analysts and behaviorists like, you know, when we were like hired to work with like a troubled youth in the high school, you know, somebody brought a gun to school or they're getting to lots of fights. The behavioral an analyst would say, you know, I don't care about the motivation of the kid. I don't care about where the kid came from. I don't care what the kid is feeling. I don't care about all these emotional issues that he's dealing with. We have to figure out what's the incentive structure for this kid to act out. What is he getting when he acts out? And it was kind of, in one way, a refreshing framework to think about. Like, why is this kid doing this activity, this behavior? And there's always like a formula. And you go, well, a lot of this is just attention. The kid needs attention, and he's not getting it otherwise. Okay, so how can we give this kid attention so that he doesn't need to do this behavior? And how can we incentivize him from doing the pro-social behavior, not the anti-social behavior? We'll pay him every day that he can handle his emotions correctly and not get into a fight he'll earn X amount of dollars. And the days that he does get into a fight, he has to pay you know, this. And it's usually done in some kind of token economy where it's not actual money, but you know, some kind of points that he'll earn. And it felt like we were bribing the kid uh, to act well. Um, and I, to be honest, sometimes it worked remarkably, right? Because it's like not about the motivations or the feelings it is you know the behavioral system that the kid is operating but a lot of times it didn't 
And the behavioral analysts just were unable to understand that and would just kind of make up reasons like, well, the thing's not being implemented correctly. The incentive structure is not, is not set correctly. Or there's other incentives that we're not taking into account in the context, you know. And, like, that's always just was an easy way of saying, like, or this doesn't work. Like, you, you know, paying somebody not to get to a fight um, – sometimes doesn't really get at the root cause about the fight you know like, there's there's not a little calculator driving this kid's behavior yeah <laughs> you know yeah and if and their and their response to when things don't work is well the, the, you know we're just not tweaking the cal- the calculator right you know yeah or the kids would get smart <laughs> and go you know what if i don't get in a fight for two weeks but then i get into a fight the, they're going <laughs> to offer me twice the incentive because yeah. they think like i'm almost there and they would just get into this weird we would get into this kind of weird relationship with the kid about like i know you really like you know going to rap shows but tell you what if you can do a whole month yeah. you can go to two rap shows and i'm like two <laughs> rap shows oh my god <laughs> you know and what about the kid who's doing well and getting straight a's and he gets nothing you know, like, yeah. how are we incentivizing, like, the bad kids and, you know, well, we have to incentivize the good kids, too, or they already have the incentives in place. And it just seemed like a self-fulfilling logic. You always uh, want to kind of see the reverse. So, like, if you're a good kid and you maintain all A's, then you can start getting into fights and we'll look the other way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what I want to see. With respect to the film, they introduced this segment by introducing the idea of incentives through a story about potty training. Stephen Levitt's daughter and the whole thesis there which is effective is that she almost instantly gets potty trained once they incentivize it Ah. but then also almost instantly starts gaming the system for her own profit yeah see I have some experience that doesn't that doesn't carry over into any other area except oh you grew up with a wacky economist father yeah i can see how something may have happened to you see every- and i imagine how she's going to react to having that in a movie now but anyway john no that's actually a hilarious example i mean potty it's perfect because like everyone who's potty trained a kid and as far as you know like uh everyone i've talked to when when we were going through it with our daughter is they decide when they're ready and, and then it just happens and that's totally true like we like banged our head against the wall for months trying to like make it work. And then, you know, we just kind of gave up and then, you know, eventually all of a sudden, not a problem. And that's like, you know, <laughs> they're, they're like three They're you know, you can't two three years old. You can't, you know, and, and high school kids are really not much more rational. You know, I mean, what drives a high schooler is not, uh, or at least, you know, I'm sure there are high schoolers that are like that. There are high schools that high schoolers that are driven by rational incentives, I'm sure, uh, but you know, a great many of them, no, certainly not every moment of the day. That was one of the interesting points that got me thinking about high school experiences. Was in passing, they say we want high school students to be more forward thinking because then they would realize the rationality of the consequences of performing poorly or dropping out. Interesting, but that's not what high school students are interested in, and that's kind of cliched a cliched truth about high school kids in general or, or any teenagers or younger that they think about the present and don't think about the future yet. Yeah. That, no, I mean, would you take that as, as generally true? I think that's generally but, true. That it's but, a cliche or that it's generally true? I both, I suppose, but that, that it's generally true. And that's really kind of sad because in, in dealing with behavioral problems and dealing with a lot of stuff, at least in my experiences, both being in high school and talking to other people about it, it's always people who, for whatever reason, forgot that high school would end and they would eventually stop going there. 
and then things would be better. So we just get rid of high school. That <laughs> no, wasn't get rid of high school. High school is is a necessary evil is not the phrase, but something similar. No, to we're that. just joking. We're coming full circle with last week. Was it last time when we talked about high school and how sort of messed up it was? I don't remember that. I don't remember that. It either. was your topic. You brought Me? it up. Yeah. Your former university president who was going around talking about oh, high school. Oh, yeah, yeah. We didn't okay. talk in depth about it, though. Actually, to, to clear myself, I totally misrepresented his arguments. Oh, yeah? Because <laughs> I went back and listened to his, looked up some of his argument more specifically, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. not really asking for a British thing. It's for um, starting high school much earlier and starting college earlier as well. Hmm. Not for everyone, but for some people. But yeah. why, why, I mean, like, other than that, is that the main change? Um, a lot of it stems from that. Then it, it kind of trails out from changing the way we do undergraduate and graduate education. You know, what you were just saying a second ago about perspective thinking about what happens after high school. I, I, I was reading this research a few months back about the transition to adulthood and these perspective longitudinal studies where they follow kids for, you know, 10, 20 years. And right. one of them was, you know, they asked these kids at 16 Will you will you get a, a college degree? Like, not do you want a college degree, but in five years from now, will you have a college degree when we talk to you again? And the kids who said yes, and they want a college degree, were you know, you know, four times more likely to actually do it. But it was actually the strongest predictor of success over any social economic um, factor. So even the poor kids from you know troubled families who said yes, I will be in college would overcome whatever obstacles that they had. Okay, but and, were there rich kids that said no? Um, by that logic, yeah. What do you mean, by that logic? Well, just like the way that they framed <laughs> that, that either model. Either there were or there weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just remember the findings. It was like it was more important for a poor kid to say that um, uh for them to say that they would finish college uh, as opposed for a rich kid to say that. Um, that's because so they I, all say it. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true. I mean, guess. Isn't that kind of the, the structure of the field, though, that all the attention is focused on the poor kids because that's the way we've constructed the problem? The rich kids are doing fine. They don't really need the help. But then maybe we're cutting ourselves off from better solution by not being holistic in the approach. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that... That could be it. Because aren't there moves to try and um, massage high school peer social relations to get to cross economic divides? Not necessarily because of economic things, but for the cultural things that go along with it. Like they yeah. would model better behavior and what, like poor yeah. kids getting massaged to rich kids? I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> poor kids. This sounds rich offensive. Kids. Well, they're going to be doing it in the future anyway. So. <laughs> they're all going to be homosexuals too, right? <laughs> that no one's paying attention it's not marxist you have to worry about it's masseuses <laughs> well Sorry. another plug for the office hours we just did an interview with maria kafalis who uh looked at young adults in iowa and she makes this argument that like um that we were kind of discussing last time too about how high high schools are kind of designed now to like in universities to to incorporate everybody but she feels like particular in, in rural places like iowa there's too much of a focus on the high achieving kids and there isn't enough done for like the kids in the middle of the road who are actually more likely to stay in Iowa as opposed to move away um, to follow better opportunities, you know? 
And she's saying, in effect, that like what rural communities need to do is like focus on vocational training uh, within high school and out of high school, um, and that have education kind of geared towards specific careers. Uh, because, you know, you ask kids if they're interested in healthcare at 18, all of them will say they're either going to be doctors or nurses, um, but they may not have the grades or really the kind of resources to go into four-year bachelor's, let alone, you know, eight years of medical school. And uh, I think it was kind of interesting because she says what you have now is like basically these really great schools in Iowa cultivating these really smart students who leave Iowa and then, you know, go to Minnesota or Chicago. and um, right. Rural brain drain. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That seems kind of relevant to what we were talking about a second ago. No, it is. I think, you know, and we, uh, the, the idea that um, uh, vocation, this sort of two tracking of vocational being for the dumb kids and, you know, more cerebral textbook learning for the smart kids, um, which is sort of how that shakes out. I mean, it's also a problem because, I mean, there's a certain kind of kid who can read a textbook and get it. And, but I think most, I think it's most people really struggle with that. You know, I mean, that's not the way most people learn. It's the way people who do well in school learn because that's the way the school is, right? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, sort of like the classic, like, uh, you know, Deweyite critique of, of education, right? And right. If, sort of vocational kinds of training I and mean, don't, don't put it that way but just more like hands-on education was considered more part of what you did in school um, more tangible skill building yeah not necessarily like in a condescending like bringing no. down the dumb kids way but i mean like as a universal way of reshaping how we think about education you know that's probably a good thing and that would probably go do a lot towards like leveling this uh you know uh achievement gap between the the bright kids who are good at numbers and at reading and at writing and then yeah. the kids who are maybe like that's not an incentive back to incentives like like that's not an incentive for them to bother with paying attention in class you know no no i, uh, I like how you frame that because it's not like these kids are better better but you're saying some kids just are more interested in doing these type of activities as opposed to others yeah and they can be struggling in kind of a writer's comp you know freshman course but maybe they would have just been interested in going to like a circuitry class or something like that but they're seen as failing if they go into those kind of courses like there's almost a stigma to go into vocational training you know because it's just oh you went to this kind of second tier private school to learn to be a nurse or you know an assistant to this you know then, i mean i feel like there's a connotation like that there definitely is and then a lot of the other research on on education also shows us that for people who do choose or get tracked into or forced into those track those vocational areas there's also a culture to those vocational areas where to use the dichotomy we've been using the the sort of college bound quote unquote smart kids who might be interested in learning those kind of skills have a stigma of going in that direction but there's also going to be a stigma already there among the students who are supposed to go into that track that wouldn't be accepting of any kids unlike themselves going in and a lot of times that'll replicate class lines or ethnic lines or whatever it might be so there's other disincentives to prevent people from exploring those options in addition to stigma yeah and and part of what leon botstein the college president is saying is the notion of childhood and adulthood has also changed significantly where we sort of know how things are going to work out from a much earlier age 
the age structure of the educational system is is of a bygone era. And we can start making some of these decisions in the mid-teens and basing it off of that point than the late teens. What do you mean by that? What 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 break that down a little bit more cuz last time you were saying uh a lot of the like European school systems sort of channel kids into professional tracks a lot earlier. And you were saying that that's what he was saying, right? But that's not I was assuming that that was the okay. case, but I didn't so, really So so what's different then? What what what's different? <laughs> um so so to, path dependency wise, you can probably predict that you can tell who's going to go to college and who's not going to go to college by maybe 15 or 16 years old. Does that match with the stuff you guys have read about this issue? Okay. So, okay. Just to say it's true. Keep, yeah. Cause I don't right, understand. So, assuming that's true. Then the rest, the, the, the next two years in high school for both the people who are going to college and the people who aren't going to college is functionally useless. Like we know that the kids, even the smart kids who are really invested and interested in education aren't going to gain that much of, of tangible things in those next two years besides looking better in the competition for more elite universities. And we also know that the kids who probably aren't going to go to college don't get anything from being caught up in a system that's pointing them at a goal they're not going to achieve when they, those years could be used better preparing themselves them for careers rather than for the unattainable goal of a college education. You know, I agree with that. It, it rubs me the wrong way at sometimes because I feel like it almost seems then that's advocating this kind of just there's just different pathways that people can, can go into, but it, it almost seems demeaning to, to this like idea of a liberal education that like it's something that everybody should take and even if there's no tangible skills that come with it, you know, everybody deserves to be enlightened by these big sure. ideas. And you know, Leon Botstein is one of the strongest defenders of a liberal arts education on the planet. So he agrees with you. And he's also a fairly well-known liberal in, in East Coast environments. Um, his point, his response to that, I assume, would be, you know, yeah, it is demeaning if we go about doing it the typical way we've done it. But we also need to start the liberal arts education stuff a lot earlier earlier than we've been doing it. And then maybe we catch more kids into a more productive line of thought. Maybe we, we have an educational, a, a sort of pedagogical way to, to change some of those trajectories. But don't you think that it could, it could easily get into a system where at 10th grade, these kids are given a test and based on that test, you're going to be a carpenter. You're going to be this, you're going to be a philosopher. You're going to be that. And yeah, and I, there's something wrong about that for me. The for earlier, the, I mean, the, I think it's kind of obvious that the younger a child is, the less responsible they are for their own state in life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're 14 or 10, you're much less responsible for how well, you know, what your life looks like than if you're 18 or 20, right? right. Um, so the further you push back those big decisions about, you know, uh, career paths, the the more you're making the more you're taking out of the the control of their hand the, the more you're taking things out of their hands right yeah um i don't know the here the i i i think i i i agree with the argument about the last two years of high school being frustrating and a waste of time and difficult though you know it's almost like you've got this model where everyone like 
like elementary school, everyone sort of goes through the same experiment, you know, experience. And, you know, you try really hard in, in elementary school, or at least good, good teachers do, uh, you know, not the 25% that suck that are costing us <laughs> trillions of dollars, but the good ones, trillion dollars, hundred yes. trillion, do- <laughs> but the good ones that are making us $300 trillion. Plus those summer vacations where they do whatever they want. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, they, you know, do you, you make elementary school a very sort of diverse sampling kind of environment, you know, where kids all sort of go through the same thing together, but they're all, you know. But by the time you get to 17 or 18, it's like, do we really need to be, like, moving in a herd from class to class and sitting at our desks and opening the book? You know, like, the the, the routine. Like, what's gained there, you know? And you see kids... I, I probably mentioned this on this podcast before, because this is just something I keep coming back to. You know, if you know kids that age, you know, like, you know 16 and 17-year-olds who have jobs where they're responsible and they're polite and they're learning stuff... And, and and then they're terrible in school or they're they're bored so they get bad grades or even they get good grades and they just don't like it you know um, right, right and it's like I, I, I can't remember both, where I, all yeah. groups are involved in trying to game the system at yeah that yeah and I can't remember where I heard this but you know I mean like the idea of like why do we have to have why can't we end school at 16 and start college at 18 <laughs> and just like have like a period of <laughs> you want the gap year yeah i mean like there's something because think about it in college so much of freshman year in college for so many people is holy crap i'm on my own holy crap i'm on my own i'm not in school anymore and it's all about the you know i, I mean maybe that's maybe that's inaccurate but it kind of seems like high school the last two years of high school is more about the social experience than it is about learning at all and early college is definitely the same way you know i mean you see this with sure you know, and it's like, why, why, why do we try to force that? Like, that's the time in your lives when people are learning how to be individuals and how to be social and how to live in the world and where they fit and what their, their niche is. And, you know, to like force school at that particular point, maybe that's, maybe that's not a bad, you know, the right way to do it. I don't know. Yeah. But then imagine if it was true, how radical a change that would be. Oh, it'd be crazy. Because you'd have all these 16-year-old kids who are technically not policed anymore. Well, and that is a yeah. very scary yeah. thing for a lot you'd of have, people. You'd have Imagine to... the talk initially about the pregnancy rate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'd have to... But I mean, I guess this gets back to more to my, like, making school or education during those years less about going to class and more about doing things where there is kind yeah. of a... You channel kids into jobs or sampling of different careers or... Um, something and it's like just part of the base of society like yeah we've got our 17 year old every every workplace has a few 17 year olds who are there and that's what they're doing they're like apprentice right. to this to the society I, or something i agree with you i think <laughs> it's an interesting idea i just imagine now that i think about it in this context so much resistance oh, to it. yeah because oh we don't want to deal with these punk kids screwing up our businesses or whatever it might be oh, and I'm so sure, many yeah. other things would have to change based yeah. off of that but I'm convinced enough that those things have to change anyway. I mean, it's like the whole, uh, uh, like if, I mean, just a co- slightly, slightly comparable experience. If anyone's ever had like a service learning component to one of their courses, you know, I don't know if you right. guys ever done that. No. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's usually a disaster. I mean, unless you, you get <laughs> the very right, perfect mix of ingredients because, you know, uh, the, the students end up going somewhere and it's often a burden on the place that you're sending them. Like they don't always actually have a good experience and maybe like (laughs) one of the students is really great, but the others, they just sort of bring them down and it's just kind of, you know, it's, 
it's just sort of a, a little mini taste of how what a nightmare that would be. So I think you're yeah. right, Chris. But at the same time, uh, yeah. I'm reminded of this great bit by. Do you guys know Louis C.K. the comedian? Mm-mm. He's. You should look his stuff up. It's. It's not for everyone, but it's great. And uh, it's got this bit about if you're 20, you've given the world nothing, and all you've done is take. And then he goes to that typical experience of like, yeah, maybe you went to Guatemala or Africa for a summer or for a semester one time. And, you know, they gave you a shovel so you could pretend that you were doing something. But really, you didn't help and they wanted you out of there as soon as possible. And, and it's funny when he says it, but that's the experience <laughs> that we <laughs> that's the experience that we'd be describing for for high school kids if these changes were to, to take effect, too. Or the, the experience of service learning in a lot of cases where, yeah. You know, I've been, I mean, all this discussion is, has been related to these things I've been thinking about a lot recently about young adulthood, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, but it's like this idea that things are just a lot more, less clear, ambivalent, um, and even this Maria Kafalas interview is, is about this idea that youth or young adults are feeling dystopic about their futures. They don't know what they're doing. There is no, like clear trajectory from high school or college into a clear job. There is no union protected occupation you can go into and retire 40 years later. And you have to kind of figure things out. You have to negotiate relationships differently. You have to negotiate your wife working or you working and new types of families. And you have to negotiate new types of careers that might not even exist today, but might exist tomorrow. And, you know, you have to be a lot more flexible than than your our parents' generation, and you see this in the data because people aren't doing a clear-cut trajectory like they were 20, 30 years ago. And there is a lot of ambivalence. You know, I think we've talked about like the adult man-child, you know, uh, mm-hmm. phenomenon. You know, where people are just taking a longer time to grow up, and there's a psychologist who calls this extended adolescence. Um, you know, all the way to 25, and then there's like a new young adulthood between 25 and 30. And, you know, are, when, are, when do we become adults? And I think as dystopic and as stifling and as anxiety-inducing as the state of not knowing what you're going to do after you leave college and even after you leave graduate school, um, it follows this kind of American ethos of, like, of, of letting the individual figure out what they're going to do in the marketplace, about what they should do and what they should invest their times in. And although, you know, a cynic of the free market system and and kind of my own research is kind of points that like it's the kids in the bottom who don't have the cultural capital to make the best decisions or the resources to mobilize to make good transitions. Um, while some kids are completely disadvantaged, I, I think there is something about allowing people to make their own decisions and knowing that they're going to mess up. But here in the U.S., as long as the economy is not too bad, these aren't really horrible, stifling situations to work through. You know, you might go into a career that doesn't last very long, but then you'll pick yourself up and you do another career. And, like, you might buy a house that forecloses, but that's rarely, you know, a, a death sentence to a person's career you know like people reinvent themselves all the time and i guess that's why i feel like 
some of these discussions, I mean, like maybe we haven't had these, but like some that I've been involved in is about what what kind of institutions can we create for the young adult for them to like feel more rooted and grounded. I feel like that's needed, but at the same time, I think that's just inevitable that people need to be, go through this flux of not knowing what they're doing. I'm sorry, I'm going off here, but I'm not sure if no, it's resonate, resonating with what we're discussing, but it feels like I think a it does. Bit. Yeah. Because, yeah. oh, go ahead, John. No, go. Oh, I feel like I've been talking too much. Um, I also, as you know, just waking up, so I'm gradually realizing what I'm saying and feeling like I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> adolescence is that time where you were saying you're not forward thinking, you, and maybe you pick up some of these dystopian things about your future, but it's also a problem of scale and that other things that you look back on later as being really inconsequential feel really important at the time which mm-hmm. is all the, the bullshit that gets kids caught up, um, which is an interesting thing that I think could be handled in some of these more policy-oriented things in a different way. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, well, that's part of why I defend the kind of liberal arts vision of education so much is because, yeah, we, we are in a world where specialization isn't as much a good strategy it was, as it was before because you are going to have to switch trajectories at least once, maybe probably several times in the course of your career. And a, a more, a better liberal arts education should better prepare you for that kind of future. Yeah. We're able to have more uh, skills. The other thing I was going to say to go back to an earlier discussion is that's the difference between us and the economists we were talking about before. As you said, we, you know, we should allow people to make their own decisions. And that's something that doesn't really come into the economic outlook on this, well, at least because- the traditional one. When we're talking about like routing people, it's like what's the most efficient way of getting people to the end point of where they need to be? How do we get that carpenter kid to become a carpenter? You know, like we don't want him to waste two years doing something that really has no economic benefit. And I feel like, well, man, if it's this kid needs to go to graduate school, get a PhD in economics, then become a carpenter. That's going to be a really interesting person to talk to. <laughs> I know that seems like a, kind of a judgment call, but I actually think it's like there's something to be said about trying different things before you decide that this is the thing you're going to do. And it just, Are you trying to know. talk about Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. Give me a second. Yes. <laughs> Jesus, yes. PhD. <laughs> Jesus, that had a carpenter PhD. kid. I know how you guys talk. <laughs> That's Dr. Jesus to you. <laughs> Oh man, I didn't even realize I was getting a little uh, prophecy. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, my point is, is that I think there is something to be said about people who bounce around, and I know some people never figure out what they're doing, and they're in a kind of difficult situation. But I don't think that happens as much as people worry about it. You know, like I, I agree. Like I met this guy yesterday that I that I used to work with at the social work place, and he's now has his own uh, pet setting business like he he's a pet setter uh, he takes care of pets i mean it seems completely absurd that an adult does that to me but really interesting guy and he's like went from social work to doing this and like that's his his life and like if he can make a living i don't think he's like you know a disastrous person yeah. i mean i think he just did things differently and i almost think that somebody who knows what they're doing is kind of boring Anyway, I'm sorry I cut you off there. John. No, I was. I thought you were done. I mean, I, I think part of the, um, I, I, the, I'm trying to make a connection between. On the one hand, you've got this uh, individual 
like level angst about what do I do with my life and how you have to be ready to constantly adapt and adjust to different, uh, you know, career trajectories and work in this field for four years and then change paths and work over here for 10 and, you know, and then when you just think about that, the problem is that the institutions we have, you know, the institutions we have aren't built around that kind of career. You know, we're built, they're built where like education, you get all your education early in life and you've passed through that phase of your life and then you're off into the career land. Right. And the problem is when that, you know, when you have a system where you're not going to have one solid job for 40 years that you get all of your health insurance through, there's another institution that's not built around that kind of career trajectory, right? Tying mm-hmm. health insurance to employment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's uh, and one. when, you know, your, your retirement, like you're not going to have a big retirement at the end where you've been paying into a, you know, retirement plan through your employer or something for 40 years consistently. Uh, like... All of the institutions that we have, education, you know, healthcare, every, you know, you go right down the line, they're designed around this particular kind of life course that doesn't exist anymore, or at least it's going away and it's becoming increasingly uncommon. Um, And I think that's like the real problem is that we're talking about education and in particular, the difficulty in like this sort of 17 to 18 18 year old range and early college. But, uh, you know, if... If you're going to be switching careers and and everything throughout your life, then education needs to be distributed throughout your life course as well. And that's just not available right now. So that's why you end up what we the way we're addressing that now is front loading the first half of our life with education and more and more education and more and more education. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And that's not a very good way to deal with it. There is one institution we have that wouldn't require that much changing around to deal with it. And that's community colleges. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, they're they're. Because yeah. they can be used to to handle people going through mid-career or any time in career trajectory shifts, and they can also handle that two-year gap that we were talking about before. I mean, any, I mean, you know, regular colleges and universities are equipped to handle that too. It's just the sort of social norms and the institutional like expectation that you know you got to go back to school for training several times throughout your life. That's just the way it is. Like that just doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. No, that's, that's very true, and I think our institutions are designed for, like, you can't have a kid, you can't have a family. You, like, you just have to do this one thing. And I remember, like, you know, my partner is a, is a doctor, and she, when she was in medical school, she was saying how, you know, she de- doesn't understand how her friends are having kids and going to medical school because, you know, they were just told how unwise that was. And I remember thinking, like, why? Why can't we have medical schools where – people can have kids and why can't we structure you know maybe instead of four years it can be six years long (laughs) you know like why is it so important that um a a student has to give everything to education at a particular time period uh otherwise you can't be taught um and then her argument was like well at residency you got to work 60 hours a week and and i was like well why is that (laughs) you know because it was like designed around like this universal male perspective of like not having to take care of a family and so I, I guess my point I'm trying to make is I agree with you I like I feel like our institutions aren't really well equipped to not only deal with the time issue but like family issues you know family conflict issues sure so it's, it's the basic point most of the important institutions of American social life have changed except for 
and, and none of the other institutions have caught up. That was really inarticulate. My apologies. <laughs> like we're talking about changes in, in institutions of gender, of family, of you know, but but all the ones that have a lot of resources associated with them, education, healthcare, haven't changed at all. And then here's the depressing part, right? How do we? Can, I mean, can either of you actually foresee a time in the near future when all of these institutions that are so outmoded actually change, like? Where's well, the, the big one is education. I mean, the big one is, is health insurance, actually. When you're, when you're talking about the employer-based health insurance, you're right. I mean, that's, like, yeah, huge and, issue. And they totally took that. I mean, like, they just did this huge health care reform, and that wasn't that was, like, we're not going to challenge that. Yeah. At least not in an obvious, direct way, you know? I think you can see, and this is more unfortunate, you'll see significant changes for certain parts of the population. That is, for the wealthy there'll be alternative institutions available. But well, those aren't going to everything will just be Yeah, everything will just be privatized. And yeah, essentially. can afford it, can have it. And, you know, so much for that, uh, you know, grand experiment of building a, like, national infrastructure so that everyone can have equal opportunity to do whatever they want. Forget that. Sorry, I, I, you know, I just did this interview with uh, Richard Lockman on, on, on the decline of the... American Empire. So I'm in a really d- depressing state of mind <laughs> about that. Our doesn't prospects. mean you're wrong, though. <laughs> no, I actually think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's, it's making me think that like economists should be on board with this. Like, if we did have, I mean, I know you're saying like we don't have these things and it's unlikely for them to occur. But if we did have a few things like universal health care, like what better way of making the economy more efficient than supporting people's mid-career changes and mid-career education? Yeah, it's flexible labor, man. Yeah, because you, you can like, okay, all of a sudden this industry is no longer viable. That's okay. I'll just, I'll, I won't have a job for three months, but I'm sure I'll find something else and it's I'll have kind of health a, insurance and but I don't know, like why, why, why can't we do it like that? Why Isn't of, like, this one cleaning, of those things where that's already happening in the usual countries that we compare to? Like this yeah, is something they're doing in Scandinavia and Canada. Yeah, and, definitely Sweden. Like people lose jobs all the time, and you know they they go. <laughs> no Swedes, they can't <laughs> hold a job. Well, like the percentage of them who like use uh, unemployment benefits is like you know yeah, something like fifty yeah. percent of the population. And like, well, in that circumstance, I'm sure is not as stigmatizing because it's just also yeah. not a bad thing for your company to you know, not need you anymore, you know? Exactly. Like, well, it's, it's the classic difference between like generous universal social welfare policies that everyone has access to. And these are enormously popular, you know, it's the same re- I mean, people, it's the same reason people are, you know, so protective of Medicare and then, you know, stigmatizing selective means tested social welfare, which everyone hates because it's, it's expensive and because you have to do all the means testing and the policing around it and it's stigmatizing to the people who have to go on it and it's, you know, uh, they, they, ha- they always t- opt towards more universal, everyone gets it policies and surprise, surprise, people love those. And they end up being more flexible, you know, because you've yeah. got governments who are accountable to people steering the ship as opposed to giant healthcare industries that arise that have their own interests in maintaining the status quo and trying to get government or anyone to pressure the entire healthcare industry to do anything is just impossible. I mean, as we saw, I mean, it was, it was crazy. The amount of hoops they had to jump through to get the insurance companies, the, the hospitals, the doctors, all these, you know, all the pharmaceutical companies all on board with relatively modest changes, 
you know, because at that at this point, they're all so entrenched and powerful. They just want to keep things as they are. Yeah. You know, and yeah. if radical changes are needed, they're not going to do it. And it's not like we can vote them out. Yeah. You can vote with a yes. bullet. I am killing discussion today. <laughs> no, I, mean, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right. I'm just... bringing y'all down. I mean, ironically, we do have policies in the U.S. that do support a flexible workforce, but they're for the rich. I mean, like biz- people who own businesses, they can start a business, lose a business, start another business. Oh, yeah. People who have mortgages, they can Cereal lose They're for the rich or they're for the, the people who've plateaued, too, because there's a lot of policies. I, I wish I could talk to like Sam Ammons or someone. It seems like there's a lot of policies for... Uh, for lack of a better term, even though there are obvious better terms, like pink collar ghetto workers, like the whole pink collar sector has a lot of family friendly things because it's woman dominated. But that's also a lot of jobs where there's no room for advancement. Is that yeah. too? Is that true, or am I being a jerk? No, I, I, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. Or uh, they're not mutually exclusive. It could be both. I, I was just thinking more like. You know, I, I was listening to this economics podcast about how I guess mortgages here are a lot less punitive than anywhere else in the industrial world. You know, like the bank can't go after your, you know, wages if you don't pay your mortgage, you know, and when your business fails, it's easy for you to restart a business. Whereas in other parts of the world, your business fails and your life fails, you know, and that there's this like inherent uh, structure in the U.S. economy that. Uh, induces innovation because it it encourages people to try different things. And while that might be true, it's untrue for the people who actually work in these industries because anytime there's downsizing, they know it's going to have catastrophic effects in their lives because they don't have these flexible systems for them. You know, they don't have flexible work schedules. They don't have the ability to go right back to education or, you know, like, or healthcare, you know, I mean, that's one of the main things that they lose and um, it just seems like the economist should be on board and saying, what do we need to do to like... I, I don't know why, you, why you're out to get economists' approval so badly. <laughs> That's where the money is. Yeah, I mean, relative to sociology, sure, but it's not like they're calling the shots in uh, you know, government policy or anything. No, but I, I think, yeah, I but mean, they're, they're seen as a little bit more like tangible in terms of like right. policy implications. Certain uh, economists are, but they're not the ones who are going to be like, you know, challenging things. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Screw the Economist. That's that's more like it. Thanks. <laughs> There's your title. We really only like anthropologists on this show because they comment. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Everyone else can just go to hell. We should invite an economist. I just don't know any really. I know they don't. Maybe talk that's to part us. of they, the problem. I don't think they'll talk to us. All the interesting work is done at the 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 overlaps of these fields, but we refuse to associate with economists. And they refuse to associate with us, I assume. Is that is yeah. that is that what's going on? I mean, like that's anytime you, I'm being facetious, but I'm sure there's an effect there. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that's definitely a critique I have of sociology in general is that we really tend to be insular and not really want to reach out and collaborate. On the other hand, when you have a situation where you have a more prestigious, uh, well well known, well respected, generally more stable uh, <laughs> uh, discipline. That try. Have you ever noticed that, like, if sociologists want to start talking about economics, they go and read a bunch of economists and then build a field around critiquing and building <laughs> upon economists? And if economists want to do something that sociologists are doing, they just go and do it and ignore sociologists entirely. Yeah, you know, yeah. 
I mean that that's kind of like the way the disciplinary hierarchy works out, right? That's the yeah. the sort of the Faustian bargain of sociology. We've we've created a field for ourselves where anything is in our purview. That there's no topic really that's cut off from us in some way. So we're sort of the jack of all trades of the social sciences and even have inroads into other fields, or at least we like to think we do. Whereas other fields have specialized a lot more and they don't consider us part of their domain. They don't consider our issues part of their domain. Yeah, but I mean, like, look at Freakonomics. Like, one way of interpreting what's going on in Freakonomics is it's an economist asking the kind of questions a sociologist does. Right? Right. I mean, like, and people are like, oh, he's so crazy. No one thinks of these things. Yeah, sociologists do all the time, have for decades. Precisely. Um, but, like, when the economist does it, they're just a unique economist. If a sociologist would go out and apply a rational choice perspective to a bunch of things, he'd be like, oh, look at that, a sociologist. He's acting like an economist. The sociologist is jumping the economics game, you know? Uh, sure. It's, it's uh, interesting. It's not just economics. I mean, you see the same thing, like, uh, when, um, like, you know, like a... Uh, biologists and you know like uh, get into understanding social behavior it's like they just sort of make up their own rules you know like uh you know like uh evolutionary psychology and crap like that they just make up their own rules instead of paying attention to what sociologists are doing and i, I don't know who do we i don't know who we ignore maybe anthropologists i don't know sorry we definitely yeah we, we kind of do we, we take over culture a lot we go like you know what culture yeah. matters yeah yeah and <laughs> we should study culture yeah. i think to some extent psychology too yeah they they fight back a bit more but um i think i think we've definitely hit them this is a somewhat related and we can do it as kind of a closing thing but um randomly enough i got invited to give a talk next monday at this uh organization that does research i won't give their name but they they've been inviting a series of different disciplines to come into the organization and talk about the methods so they had a psychologist and anthropologist and now they asked me if i would come in and give a little bit of a, like a 20 minute spiel about what how sociologists study problems and um i was talking to them over the phone because they were looking at my CV. They're like, oh, you've done all these different things and we're thinking about doing mixed methods and we thought you'd be a good person to just have a conversation, you know. And I was thinking, like, do we really have a method? You know, like an economist has mm-hmm. econometrics, you know, anthropologists have ethnography. And I was going to say that, like, sociology kind of encompasses a lot of different orientations we have epidemiologists ethnographers people who look at case studies people who do surveys but we don't really have a a shared religion called the sociological imagination well that's what i was going to (laughs) say i was going to say like we have like a theoretical orientation about how we interpret but it would be kind of i would be walking to a minefield if i were to say you know um this is what sociologists do in terms of a method it's more like what do you think about that would that be convincing? Convincing? That's your only option. Yeah, I mean, it's true. <laughs> That's what I was saying before. We've sacrificed having those unique characteristics for the ability to be able to do everything, which makes us uniquely suited to the challenges we were talking about before, about the future, but also the most likely to be ignored in preparing for the future. So we're trained to do nothing. No, everything. And we're for nothing. Yeah. yeah. But the rest of the system is set up for specialization, and we have them bucking that trend. Well, we, we've had a 
a tenacious relationship with that trend because the part of the discipline, the mainstream that we always talk about, um, has been trying to do that. But then we don't let them do that all the way because we disagree with what they're trying to do. Is that too vague? I, I think so, but I think I get what you're, you're trying to say. I mean, I was going to use kind of like some empirical examples and saying how sociologists understand something from kind of a broader perspective, and you're always going to hear them talking about context and institutions. And, and one way to think about it is that sociologists study norms over specific behaviors is kind of why people do certain things. And, you know, I was reading this economist who was talking about like, oh, it's hard to understand rational behaviors without understanding this thing called norms. And that there's some certain normative practices to how people buy and purchase certain things. And I thought that might be an interesting way of saying, well, you know, essentially he's, he's talking about a sociological way of looking at things where it's, it's not looking at the individual act, but the aggregate of the act, um, not confined within the individual, but more of the context of that act. I haven't quite figured it out. I mean, I'm not spending a whole lot of time pre- preparing because it said it was a ca- casual conversation, but I was thinking this morning, like, huh, I can't really, like, define any particular method. And it, it could get really vague if I start saying, well, you know, if you go back to Durkheim and his notion of social facts. Um, That's how to get them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People love that. Or, uh, you know, the double hermeneutic as defined. That's where I would start, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, that's – they're like, thanks for coming. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming, Herman. Nice to see you again. No, I mean, there's – I mean, there – this is the thing with sociology is that there are people who are insistent that there is – then. In, in crafting a very articulate, specific uh, definition of what is sociology and what is not sociology. And you hear people say things are not sociological or are sociological. And then there's the kind of, no, nah, we're just kind of the general social science. You know, there's advantages yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And we like it that way. And, you know, like you kind of either fall into one of those camps or the other. I'm in the latter camp for sure. Um, whenever I hear someone go, this just isn't very sociological in my, you know, I just kind of turn off, tune out, but I don't know. Well, what I do is I try to figure out what the audience is. If it's a highly quantitative audience, then I'm a really good qualitative researcher. And if they're a qualitative audience, then I'm a statistician. Exactly. We're a contrarian field, a field yeah. of contrarians, kind of, not really. Except we all have our own shared religion within which we're incredibly conformist. The yes. sociological imagination. Well, it's like which when you is, go to the- Which is, I might add... Like the, the the I mean can can we do we want to crack this nut? <laughs> Go for it, crack it. There's a real problem with having the uniting feature of your field be an explanation for what you're trying to explain, right? <laughs> I mean, there's a real problem that the only thing that unites us is that we think the social thing is what's causing everything. Yeah. Right. I mean, if that's what it means, I mean, I'm not saying that's what the sociological imagination is. You know, sure, it's this idea of, you know, looking at the world in a certain way and, you know, sort of imagining ourselves out of our own individual local perspective. I mean, I get that. Um, But ultimately, a lot of times what it boils down to is that we say social causes matter. They say other, you know, and this is maybe true, you know, psychologists, obviously, surprise, surprise, find their causation within the brain and the mind and you know epi- you know uh, epidemiologists find these you know look at large large scale in demographers look at large scale trends in populations and that's where they find their explanations at i mean maybe this is endemic to all fields uh but it seems like sociologists we got that really bad you know yeah. i mean yeah. 
you know. No, because our thing is like context and like, well, how do you define context? How do you measure it? And I, I think our thing was the society pages. Or the society. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh man, that's terrible. That was that was good. That was good. Um, you know, glad it was you and not me that said that. <laughs> I'm well, not. When you go to the ASA and you go to the different sections, you kind of realize that every section kind of defines themselves outside of the center of sociology. Like there's always yeah. them versus us, and we're kind of the outsider. And yeah, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, like I, I belong to the medical sociology section, and among others, and like medical sociology is huge. You know, like, and it's like probably one of the largest sections, yet it defines itself in the periphery of the field. And you ask them what's the center, and they go, oh, the theory guys or the race, class, and gender. Right. You go to talk to those theory. guys, sure, they're like, theory. yeah, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> We're outside of the box. It, it's like everybody is in the periphery of the center, and you're like, well, it goes back to what you're saying, John. It's like, well, we've defined ourselves in a particular way of describing what we do as, you know, always bringing the other perspective talking about the sociological imagination that's not a really coherent way to define it.